right, good morning. I ask you, if you will, to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. We here at Taylor's First believe uh, that God's Word is supreme for us. It's our authority, it's what we look to, it's inerrant, infallible, and it is enough. And so uh, what that means for us then is oftentimes we find ourselves as we preach through passages going verse by verse, we find ourselves preaching some difficult passages at some interesting times. And so this morning happens to be that. Now, I want to tell you that I'm looking forward to this next week. We have our lessons and carols tonight. Another display as Brother Scott leads us in worship again this evening. Another display that we believe the Word is supreme as it reigns uh, in our lives, as we read it together, as we sing the Word together. So I encourage you to be back with us at 6 o'clock tonight for that. This coming Christmas Eve, we'll have two services, 3 and 5. They are identical. Bring your family, bring them in, and we will be looking at God's Word together and singing again, celebrating what Christmas means. And then, of course, next Sunday morning, we'll be looking at 11 o'clock in our main worship center. We'll be, or as Scott called it, the big room. We'll be looking together uh, at the last passage in Matthew's gospel pertaining to the birth of Christ. But this morning, as we come, believing that God's word is one book with one main author, the Holy Spirit, believing that it has one main subject, we turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. We turn there this morning because... Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus is very much centered on the idea of fulfillment. Jesus has come to fulfill the prophets. Of course, as we've looked over this the last couple of weeks, we've seen this. On five occasions, he says something to the effect, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. We see that in verse 22 of chapter 1. Or in chapter 2, verse 5, so it is written by the prophet, then he quotes Micah 5, 2 that we looked at last week. And then as we move on down in our section, we have these two together. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Hosea 11. Or in chapter 2, verse 17, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Matthew is constantly showing how Jesus has fulfilled what the prophets had said. This, in Matthew's mind, as he announces the birth of this king, Jesus, who's come to save his people from their sins, he's testifying that everything that was ever promised is found in him. You don't have to look at anybody else. He has fulfilled it all. And so he announces this birth of Jesus, the Son of God, and his desire is to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills all the predictions of the prophets, that he is the true Messiah. And now... Of these five Old Testament quotations that we find in Matthew's gospel, we, or as we may want to call them fulfillments, it brings us to what commentators helping us understand how this works because I think we're going to see a little bit of difference. In other words, one commentator calls the first two that we looked at where he, he quotes from Isaiah 7, he will be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel. And then he quotes from Micah 5, he will be born in Bethlehem. He calls these precise fulfillments. In other words, they're exact. Jesus was born of a virgin and he is God with us precisely. This is that, in other words. 
Isaiah 7 predicted it, and it came precisely true in Christ. Or that same way of this king, this shepherd king, will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That came to pass with Christ's birth in Bethlehem precisely as he said it would. In other words, these fulfillments are precise. Jesus fills, fulfills the prophecy precisely. But there's another type of fulfillment now we move to in these next three, what the commentators call patterned fulfillment. Not necessarily precise fulfillment, this is that, but patterned fulfillment, this is this. In our next two passages that we'll look at this morning is Matthew looking at the pattern of Jesus' life at birth and saying, here you find the same patterns that we did in the history of Israel. You find the same patterns that have, have come about. All of this comes, of course, by the chain of events set off by the visit of the wise men who came into Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And there was already a king in Jerusalem named Herod who was a wicked king. And Herod was troubled, of course, by this question. He hadn't had a child. In fact, Herod had killed his three sons so as to not be threatened by them taking his throne. And so now this threat comes up and Herod, troubled by this, asked these wise men, when did you see the star? Where did you see the star? And all the other questions. He sent the wise men away saying, report back to me when you find this child. And as we know, as we saw last week, as the wise men went, they worshipped, and they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they went back another path. And as time passed, Herod did not hear back. And as the wise men had been warned, they did not return to him. Herod didn't just remain troubled. Herod became furious, our text says. He became furious at this. And these next two passages 13 through 15 and eight and 16 through 18. These next two passages, I believe, as Herod is troubled, bring great distress. His anger is kindled, but I also believe they bring great hope. So our attempt this morning, and I'm going to ask you to buckle up because it's going, we're going to take a ride today. But I think, my hope, is that we will, whatever we do, we will land the plane we're flying on. Does that make sense? So I want us together to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Here Matthew writes, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you take your word this morning and use it in our hearts and in our lives to make us 
Make us better followers, better believers of you. And if there's someone here today that does not know you, God, God, may they see today that Jesus is the one that brings hope in the midst of despair. That Jesus is the one that can, that can bring life in the midst of death. That Jesus is the one, Father, who came for us to rescue us from our sin so that we may know him and be with him. God, I pray that no one leaves out of this room trusting in anything in this world but Jesus. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now again, we read this passage and it makes us cringe, obviously. And here we are, the, the last Sunday before Christmas, and I'm preaching on what many have termed the killing of the innocents. And so, in some sense, we look at this and go, why is this here? Or why are we, how, how do you deal with this? Or how do you look at this? And what, what we have to do is kind of understand that Christmas began long before the manger scene. What I mean is, from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, we are told when sin enters in, that there's going to be a great raging battle. There's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we're told that the, the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will ultimately crush the serpent's head. Victory will be won by one who will be born of a woman. And then as we look throughout Scripture, we see this battle raging. We see the battle of good versus evil, of the seed of the woman, the one who's seeking after the Lord, following after the Lord, versus the seed of the serpent who's looking to destroy. From Cain and Abel, through the wickedness of the world over against Noah with the flood, through Pharaoh and the Exodus, through the battle for Israel and their faithfulness to God, we constantly see this war that's taking place between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And really, all throughout the Old Testament, what we are looking for is the serpent crusher to appear. Where is he? When is he going to finally deal with this? When is he going to finally handle the enemy of God and finally put to death this serpent that has disturbed the peace of God? When will it happen? And we see glimpses of hope all throughout. We see the Lord redeeming his people out of slavery. We see the Lord caring for them, raising up leaders over and over again. But in every case, the leaders he raised up only fail. They can't quite complete the task. They can't do that ultimate thing while they deliver Israel for a moment in God's power, they can't finally deliver them from the evil that is bearing down. And so ultimately we see constantly searching for this serpent crusher, the one who would finally deliver God's people from their enemies and lead God's people faithfully home. And what Matthew is doing here in his gospel is he's telling us that that serpent crusher has finally come. The one we've been looking for is here. The one we've been longing for has come. The hope that we had set in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there'll come one who will finally deal with the great disturber of God's peace, that one is here. As Matthew begins his gospel, if you, and I don't oftentimes do this, but I do think it's helpful here, Matthew begins his gospel with the Greek words, biblos genosios, which means the book of the beginning. In other words, Matthew is saying we have a new beginning that's taking place here. 
And, and in fact, if you read Genesis, and you read Genesis, especially reading it written in Hebrew, but translated into Greek, Genesis is, is uh, divided into ten sections. And each section in Genesis begins with that word, those two words, biblos, genosios. And so in other words, as Matthew's coming, he's saying, we now have a new section here. We now have a new beginning that's taking place. We got something different that is happening. So Matthew's making this announcement. Something new is happening for the people of God. After 400 years of silence from the prophets, now God will speak again. And how he speaks is going to be the final word here. We think about the Old Testament, and we think about the major events of Israel's history, we probably could list many. You probably could list things like the call of Abraham or the Canaan conquest or the, the seating of, of David on the throne and the beginning of the Davidic dynasty and all these other things. You could list so much. But if we had to boil it down in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, I believe there's two great significant events, the exodus and the exile. The exodus and the exile. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that some of us in here are going, what in the world is he talking about? You, you may remember the exodus. The people of God were in Egypt, and the Pharaoh had forgotten Joseph and the ways of God, and he had put the people of God in the bondage of slavery, and he was oppressing them, and God sent Moses to deliver them out of slavery and bondage. That is the exodus, brought them through the Red Sea as it parted, took them to Mount Sinai, gave them his law, and led them 40 years in the wilderness to finally when they got home to the promised land, the exodus. But also then the exile. The exile was when, while God's people were in the promised land, they did not remain faithful to him. And God told them that he will judge them by sending nations to conquer them. And so finally and ultimately, Babylon came in. They conquered Israel. They wiped out Jerusalem. They knocked the temple over every single stone. And they took all of God's people, all of Israel, and they took them back to Babylon to serve them as slaves. That's known as the exile. These two events are, are recognized as these two major pieces in Israel's history. In fact, Matthew recognizes them because when he sets up the genealogy, he, he makes it in three sections with the exodus and the exile as the two main sections and then finally Jesus being the third. And so as you see the exodus and the exile, these two great events in Israel's, Israel's history, what's happening here then is Matthew is going to show how Jesus has come to redeem both of those events. For example, we see in our first passage the exodus being warned in a dream. We see the quiet faithfulness of Joseph again. Take the baby and go to Egypt. And it just simply tells us he got up and he did it. He went to Egypt. And all of this was because Herod, as the, as the angels told him, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then as he flees to Egypt, he rose, took the child, his mother, by night, departed Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. He quotes here from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea is recounting the exodus. 
He's given the history of Israel. He's saying, you remember when God led you out of Egypt? That's exactly what he says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is saying Jesus has to flee to Egypt just like the people of God fled to Egypt before. And just as God called them out, they're going to call Jesus out. Hosea is, is, is giving this, this statement. But, but what happens here is that the reason this passage is chosen in Hosea is not because Jesus is going to be a new and better deliverer, although he will be. He's the greater Moses. But because Jesus is the new and better son. Here's, here's why he chooses this Hosea passage. In other words, in Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let Israel, my son, go. The Lord refers to Israel as his son. And so he, he leads them out. In Hosea 11, that's exactly what he says. He says, I taught them to walk. I took them by the arms. I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. I bent down and fed them. The Lord led his son out of Israel by caring for them, leading them, feeding them, watching over them. And here, what we find out is Hosea 11 tells us that while the Lord did all of these things, the people of Israel kept turning away from him. In fact, it says, they, the more that they were called out, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. They kept turning away from me. So God is leading his children out, but while they, the same time he's being faithful, they're being unfaithful. And so here, what Matthew was doing, he's saying, this Jesus who's come, this is the son who is faithful. This is the one who's being called out. Jesus continues this history, by the way. If you remember in Matthew's gospel, as soon as he's, he's called out, what happens? He goes through his baptism, right? And at his baptism, what happens? The, the dove descends and the heavens open up and the Lord God says with a loud voice, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here is the one that is faithful and true. Here is the one that will keep all the promises. Here is the one that will do what I've called him to do. This is my beloved son. And if you remember, immediately after he comes out the waters of baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by Satan himself. Jesus' life just coincides exactly, looks exactly like Israel's journey themselves. And while Israel failed at every point, Jesus never fails. He faces the temptation of Satan and he conquers him even in the wilderness. Even as he's hungry and starving, he says, man lives by the word of God. And so ultimately, ultimately what Matthew is saying here is this Jesus is the good and faithful son that fulfills all that the, that the father has called him to do so that he can save his brothers and sisters. So that he is the one who can redeem those who would come after him. The true exodus, the true exodus is not out of Egypt and slavery there. The true exodus is out of the slavery and bondage of our sin. The true exodus is not that we will be led out of oppression from some, some country in some place of the world. The true exodus that we need is that we'll be led out of the bondage and slavery of our sin into the freedom of eternal life. And Christ has come so as he can redeem his brothers and sisters and lead them out of that bondage and slavery. Notice what Hosea 11 continues to say. The Lord they keep going away from him, but the Lord says, I can't do it.
do away with them. In fact, he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. In other words, the Lord says, they deserve my wrath. They deserve my judgment because they keep turning away. But I will not judge them. I will not bring wrath upon them. In fact, he says, I am going to go into the very midst of them and roar like a lion. They shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars... His children shall come trembling from the west, and they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Amen. What the Lord is saying is, I'm going to send my lion into the midst. Instead of judgment, he's going to roar. And when he roars, it will not be the roar of judgment that your enemy is here. It will be the roar that your father is calling you home. And what Matthew is saying is, Jesus is that. He's the hope of Hosea 11, that God will not judge us because we've kept going away. God will not judge us because we kept turning to other gods. God will not judge us ultimately. That God will save us by coming for us, by sending the lion, the lion of Judah after us. This is the new exodus that he's saying is happening now. But not only that, not only has he come to secure the salvation of his people with a new exodus from their sin, he will also get his people safely home. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. I want to be honest. This is a horrific passage. I mean, when you read this, I cringe upon reading it. I mean, just think of what's happening. Herod is furious. He's in anger at the challenge to his throne. And so when the wise men don't return... He had ascertained, as it tells us, that they saw the star about two years ago. So he says, every male two years or younger must die. In Bethlehem and all the region around it, this event is called the slaughter of the innocents. One of my buddies, I was telling him I was preaching on this passage here the Sunday before Christmas. He said, yeah, I did that one time. He said, he said I named my sermon, uh, The Blood of Babies in Bethlehem Streets. He said, my wife told me never do that again. So here I am. We come to this passage, and it is awful. And what I want to do here today is I want to, I want to say, how does this work with Jesus? What is Matthew trying to do with the announcement of the birth of Jesus? This prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. Jeremiah here in this passage is referring to Rachel, Rachel, the wife of the patriarch Jacob. Rachel, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. In fact, as she was giving birth to Benjamin, if you remember, Jacob had, had worked seven years and he got Leah, the sister. And then he worked for seven more years and he got Rachel, the one he loved, as it said. And then she gives birth to Joseph and she gives birth to Benjamin. When she gives birth to Benjamin, she dies in childbirth, traveling, giving birth to Benjamin. And so there she's buried. And many say where she's buried was on the road to Bethlehem, outside Bethlehem in a town or area called Ramah. And so here, Rachel becomes a symbolic figure for all of Israel. The prophets use her as, the, as again, the, the word is the Mater Dolorosa. The, the mother, the sorrowful mother. 
Whenever something sorrowful happens or painful happens to Israel, they would say Rachel is weeping because she is the one of sorrow because she died in childbirth having been loved by Jacob. And so here Rachel buried in Ramah, Jeremiah says that what's happening amongst them causes Rachel to weep. And what was happening in Jeremiah's time? It was the exile. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's watching as Jerusalem's being destroyed by Babylon. He is watching as the people of God are being walked out to Babylon, as they're led out there. In fact, many know, as Jeremiah tells us in chapter 40, that he was imprisoned several times on this path, even imprisoned in Ramah. And so Jeremiah is one who sees the exile happening, and he understands Rachel's tears, the tears of the exile. And they have reached now their climax, is what Matthew's saying, with these babies being born in Bethlehem. It just continues this line of tears for the people of God over and over again. But that's where then we bring in Jesus. The message of Jeremiah 31 is unlike all the rest of the book of Jeremiah. When you read Jeremiah, you recognize that it is a sorrowful book. He's called the weeping prophet. There's no hope anywhere. The people of God are being judged. They're being taken away. But Jeremiah 31 is different from all the rest of the book. While all the rest of the book is one of sorrow, Jeremiah 31 is one of hope, not sorrow. As we look to Jeremiah 31, we see verse 15, Rachel weeping for her children. The verse is quoted, but then look at verse 16. If you have your Bibles, or you can just listen along. The Lord says in verse 16, the very next verse, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. In other words, Rachel is weeping, but the Lord says, stop. Keep your, keep your eyes from weeping. Don't do it anymore. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. While Rachel is weeping because the children have been taken away, God is saying, hey, look, don't cry any longer. There is hope coming. There's hope coming in the midst of your sorrow. There's hope coming in the midst of your pain. And that's what we see. Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. Why? Because the return is going to happen. I am going to come and get my people out of exile and bring them safely home. A new king is coming, Jeremiah 31 says. And that new king will form a new covenant with his people, a new promise. And that promise simply says this in chapter 31. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, Jeremiah 31 is teaching us that God, even though his people have been taken out in exile, he will rescue them. He will call them back out of the foreign lands and bring them safely home to him. He will write his name on their heart. In fact, he will give them a new heart, and that new heart will be one that knows him. He has saving his people, and he is going to bring them safely home. And where is home? Home is with him. It's not just in some confined place on a map somewhere. He's saying, I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to be with you. 
In the midst of this heartache of Jeremiah 31, there is this hope that it will not stay like this forever. I'm sending one who will save you and call you safely home. These two passages then in Matthew reflect those two places in Israel's history, the exodus and the exile. And what Matthew is doing is Matthew is saying, this Christ Jesus that has come, he is going to bring us out of the exodus like we've never known before. Not saving us just from Egypt, but saving us from our sin. And not only is he going to do that, he is going to bring us out like he promised in the exile so that we are not just lost in wandering, he's going to take us safely home. He's not just saving us and leaving us, he's saving us and carrying us safely to himself. That's who he is. And if we look at this together then, we see As he said before that Jesus is the Savior. He will save his people from their sins. He is God with us, the presence of God with us, Emmanuel. He is the king who is also the shepherd. Matthew is announcing who he is. And now in these two passages, he's telling us exactly what he's going to do. Here, your shepherd king, Emmanuel, your Savior, is going to deliver you from the bondage and slavery of your sin. And bring you safely home, finally and completely. That's what he's going to do. And he's using these two passages to tell us this. Despite every effort of Herod carrying out the satanic plan to end the Messiah, there is hope because the Messiah escapes Herod's plans and will ultimately reign again. That's Matthew's point. And notice this little verse, this little note in verse 19 of chapter 2. As it starts that next section where it says that the voice was, was weeping, Rachel was weeping. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, do y'all notice that there? Rachel is weeping and she refuses to be comforted, quoting Jeremiah 31. But then the next verse, but when Herod died, the one who is angry, the one who is furious, the one who thinks he can end God's reign, he can take out the baby here from the start, he's the one who will have to face judgment and death. But God's people, God's people have a different one. And that points me then to my first point, and these are going to be quick, don't worry. All that was introduction. Jesus coming means that the plan of God to save sinners cannot be stopped. So trust in him. It means the plan of God to save us cannot be stopped. From Genesis 3, he told us, I'm going to send the serpent crusher to save you from this enemy. The one who's disturbed the peace, I'm going to end him. And as Romans tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, right? And so here's what we see. God is demonstrating that Satan has had a plan all along to end the reign of God by destroying the children that would be born, by ending them, by doing everything he can to to, to knock God off of the path of the Savior coming. He's done it throughout the wickedness of the world, and God sent the flood. The wickedness of, 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 of God's people have seen over and over again. This battle has been raging, but in every place... Satan's plan has been thwarted, and God shows he reigns. Everyone, all the way to the manger, 
Satan has been trying to stop this deal, and he cannot stop it. And even after, even after Jesus is born, he tries to end it by having Herod kill all the babies, but God delivers his son again. Herod's plan is thwarted. God has worked out his plan according to the counsel of his own will. Think of all the ways, as I've just mentioned, that Satan was acting at the, and, and those who act at the bequest of Satan to, to end this plan all for nothing. Even as Jesus is in the wilderness, not having eaten for 40 days, Satan says to him as he takes him to the pinnacle and says, Look out, I'll give you all of this. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me. Get behind me. I shall only serve the Lord my God. In other words, Satan's trying to say to Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have it all. You just don't need to go to that cross, right? Because Jesus is going to be the one who reigns forever. He's going to be the one who receives all the kingdoms of the world. His, king, his kingship shall be known from coast to coast, from sea to sea. Satan's desire was to say, just don't go to the cross. I'll give it to you. Just don't go to the cross because he knew that's where Jesus would secure his defeat. So anybody that tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross, Peter himself, who said, you don't need to die like that, Jesus. Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus has come with a plan and nothing can stop that plan. The nations rage, as Psalm 2 says, and the people plot in vain. But he who sits in the heavens laugh. Because nothing can stop the plan of God. Consider how Paul puts it in Galatians 4 when he says, When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a, one, a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Just when he wanted to, at just the right time, God sent his son Jesus to be born in a manger in Bethlehem. Just when he wanted to, at just the right time, he sent him. And nobody can stop him, no matter how hard they try. Nobody could end it. Nobody could do anything against it. God has completed the task. This goes back to the, all the way to the cross and to the resurrection itself. My first sermon I ever preached here, when, when the church here uh, uh, voted to, to recognize me as pastor, was Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 gives this picture of Satan waiting there to devour, to devour the children that are born so as to stop the Messiah before he gets any power. But he can't do it. God brings salvation. But not only that, trust in him because he accomplishes what he seeks to accomplish. Jesus, coming's me, me, Jesus coming means rest to those who are weary. So hope in him. The two great events, the exodus and the exile, finds the people of God weary and tired. In bondage of slavery, in Egypt, Pharaoh having ordered the death of all of the infants there. In bondage of slavery, in Egypt, 
They had no power. They couldn't free themselves. They were weary and they were tired and they were at their last hope. God must act on their behalf. And so it is for them that were in the exile. All of Jerusalem had been destroyed and all of the people had been taken from their homes over to Babylon, weary and tired with no power to save themselves, no power to do anything for themselves. This wearisome and terrible times had come. Bondage and slavery, lost home and place. But in the midst of those terrible times, Jesus comes to identify with both. In other words, those of us who are in bondage and slavery of sin, you have no power to save yourself, much like those in Egypt at that time. But Jesus has come to save you. He's the great deliverer who recognizes and knows what you're dealing with. He's been in your shoes and in your place. He had to flee to Egypt himself, and now he's come to save you out of it. Or the ones of us who were displaced and don't have a home, who feel like this world cannot satisfy us in any way, but yet we have no power to satisfy or find satisfaction in ourselves. Jesus has come to satisfy us. He's the light shining in the darkness. He's the hope in the midst of despair. He's what we look to. He's what we long for in the midst of a world of chaos. He is the certain North Star that points us in the right direction every single time. That's what we're looking for. He's the hope in the midst of all of it. Over the years, my favorite Christmas song, mainly because every my dad being a pastor, we had to go to Christmas Eve service, and every year my mom sang the same song. In fact, our Christmas Eve service was always the same. I still have it memorized. But my mom sang the same song, Oh Holy Night. And I love the words there because listen to again what it says. I'm sure you hear it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. I love that phrase. The thrill of hope. Have you ever been in such great despair that it's not going to turn out good, it's not going to turn out well, it's not going to work, and then in that moment you get that word of hope that what you thought was over with and done, in the midst of it we still have some hope. There is a thrill that is found in that moment and what that song says, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's exactly what Matthew's saying. In sin and error, we were in the exodus, we were in exile, but here we have hope that Christ has come to deliver us and bring us safely home. A new morning is dawning now. Matthew is saying, look, something new is happening and the hope you have looked for is here, even in the midst of despair. Think of the despair of these mothers in Bethlehem who've lost their children. And that's just one example of the wickedness of the world who has gone after sin and the lust of self. We've got thousand more examples. And you could say, that looks like it's going to win. But no, there's hope here. It will not win. What about your life then? Do you have hope in the midst of despair? Finally, Jesus' coming means that not only will he save you, but he will get you safely home. So rest in him. The exile was where Israel was found in Jeremiah 31. But the promise says, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to come after you. 
And ultimately what we find out is that all of us in this room that have trusted in Jesus, we were once exiled as well. But we heard the voice of God calling out to us. Hey, welcome home. Come home. I'll lead you there. And when we heard the gospel, we heard the cry of God saying, come on. I'll show you the way home. I'll save you and I'll take you there. And what he says in Jeremiah 31 is that when, Ra when, when Rachel is weeping, he will wipe away her tears. Maybe if you've been around church long enough, you've heard that phrase before. But if you hadn't, let me go ahead and tell you that that's exactly what the scriptures tell us will happen in the end when God brings us safely home to him in glory. He'll take the pain and the sorrow that we have and he'll wipe away every single tear for his children. Everything wrong will be made right. Sin will be done away with no more. Satan finally and ultimately defeated, head crushed, thrown where he's deservingly to go and God's people will be safely with him. You remember it started in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. But it surely will end in Revelation 22. When the scriptures tell us, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. My friends, Jesus not only came to save us, he's going to lead us safely home to be with him. He's going to deliver us from our sins and bring us safely to himself so that we will be with him forever. Matthew says, that's what he's come to do. That's him. That's him. Trust in him. Hope in him. Rest in him. That's him. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for Christ, who he is, and what he has done for us. So God, today I pray that everyone in this room will hope in him, trust him, rest in him. Jesus is enough. He can satisfy our every longing. And this weary world, Father, will rejoice at the announcement of the coming of a Savior. God, we thank you. May you work in hearts even now as we prepare to sing in response. May you be exalted, not us. And Father, may it be that if someone is here, someone is here that knows they need to trust you, they need to find some hope in you, that their, their life is full of darkness everywhere, God, and uncertainty. They need the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that today will be the day they turn to you. Resting finally in who you are and what you've done for them. Turning away from their sins, turning to salvation in Christ. God, work in hearts for that reason now. If you're here today and you need to do just that, Pastor Stephen, our reach pastor, will be standing in the back. He'd love to receive you while you are singing. All you got to do is walk back there. He'll talk to you about it. But do not leave today still in darkness. Leave today looking to the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Let's stand together and sing.